Hear the word of our Lord from the book of Jude, beginning in the 17th verse. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we're going to ask a question and we're going to answer it. And it's a really, really tough question that some of you are going to get. Other people are going to be like, what are you talking about? So the question is, why does the church beat her children? I know it's, it's, it's great after the, the downer of last week's episode here, <laughs> coming up and asking this question. Why does the church beat her children? Now, what do I mean by that? Let's say you lose your job. You lose your job and then you let your pastor know and you, you go to your men's breakfast that week. You, get, you got laid off at your, as a Sprint salesman because of the, uh, the switch, right? Sprint uh, merged with uh, T-Mobile there, and uh, they don't need all these Sprint guys anymore. They're, they're letting the CDMA network go, and you get laid off. So you go to your church, and you, you go to the men's breakfast, and you say, Guys, I need some help right now. I need some support for my family. And everybody at that men's breakfast, a whole lot of them, they don't have nothing for you. In fact, one of them at least, one of the men, probably an elder at the church, some boomer is going to say, well, why aren't you bootstrapping there, pal? Why don't you just get another job? Do you, you should have enough references. Hell, you should be willing to work for experience. What is this? This is America. Why are you millennials so entitled? And you know what? The pastor's going to nod along. He's not really going to have much help for you. He doesn't know how to get you a job. But you went to your church thinking these would be the people that should help you out. And after you get solidly rebuffed and you get plenty of people telling you they have absolutely no clue how they can help you out, then they move on to discussing how to get greater support and funding for world missions. That's right, because people several thousand miles away are more important and deserve more compassion from your church than you do. Is that familiar? That's an illustration. That's an example of how the church beats her children. Let, let's look at another example. Mark Driscoll of Infamy. Looking down at the men of his church screaming, how dare you touch a woman? How dare you claim to even have a woman or have the privilege of having a woman when you have all these sins in your life and you're not treating them right? And he says in the middle of that sermon, some of you are thinking, would I talk to the women this way? Of course not. Because they're not like you. That's another example of the church beating her children. Another example, third one, final example here. Although there will be more. There's another certain mega church out there where sheepishly, embarrassedly, yeah, and I said embarrassedly, that's probably not a word, but as though he were embarrassed by it, the pastor gets up there and goes, you know, some of you mentioned to me that uh, homosexuality is sinful. But I'm here to tell you right now that, that a, a preference or a predilection is not a sin. It's the act, and you're supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin. And by the way, some of you out there who are living with your girlfriends, and some of you out there who, are, who have done fornication, you're in no position to judge. And if I ever hear any of you ever say anything against a homosexual here, or be mean, or not accepting enough to any homosexual walk through these doors, I'm kicking you out of my church right now. 
and so the church beat her children. Okay, I can't help myself. Another example. A certain Lutheran group who in the fires of 2020 tore through America with a certain, um, a certain movement we all know. Uh, it's an acronym. And it's, it's about some group of people's lives mattering, if memory serves correctly, is they're tearing the church apart. This particular Lutheran group bent over backwards to talk about systemic racism in the United States. And they, they went around to talk about the racism problem within this self-same Lutheran group. Now this, mind you, is while after, the, um, after Mr. Floyd was killed, after he died, um, you know, whether that was killed by drugs or whatever the heck happened, you know, everybody says he overdosed, but the evidence was still out and Derek Chauvin wasn't uh, put in jail yet. As the country is just burning and violence is absolutely everywhere, this Lutheran group took that as the opportunity to accuse themselves of being racist, of having an evil racist past. And accused themselves of being too white. And accused America of having a systemic racism problem. And the leader of this denomination went out to, to make this a big thing about how America needs to repent of the original sin of racism. And this was the entire group humiliating itself. And I know pastors who were in that particular denomination, that particular Lutheran group, who hated this. All of them were embarrassed by this. Their own synod just contorting itself to do this. And that was the Missouri Synod. As most people listening to this already know, they, um, they came out with all sorts of statements out there, basically self-flagellating. And instead of condemning the out-and-out -out violence, the extreme rhetoric, the painful things happening, and people's lives being ruined that had nothing to do with the death of George Floyd, instead of condemning that, instead of saying, the government needs to do something about this, they turned inward and started accusing their own laity of being too white, too racist, too American, having all these problems. And so even the Missouri Synod, the leadership anyway, engaged in the church beating her children. This preference for non-believers, this preference for evil over good, or for people far away rather than people close by. And a cowardly unwillingness to condemn real evil when they see it. But an all-too-willingness, absolute ease in sliding in to condemn your own people and attack your own parishioners. Where does that come from? Why does the church beat her own children? And why would they get upset when a guy tries to get up? and start a fraternity that puts a stop to it. Well, let's, let's look at that. So there's three reasons, as, as I've been chewing on this question now for, oh golly, four months now? Four months of trying to figure this out. Why does the church beat her own children? And obviously, nay, cult. not all churches are like that. Not all congregations do this, but it is an endemic problem in American and Western churches as a whole. It, it's, it's so common that even good churches, churches that are absolutely solid on 89% of everything else, the 11% is just every once in a while, mommy church gets angry and starts beating her kids. Why? Well, there's three reasons. As I said, there's three, to the best of my knowledge, three reasons why this is happening. And the first is loving the world. The absolute first here is loving the world. Let's turn to the book of James here, chapter 4. And let's look at what uh, St. James has to say for not only the believers, but the church. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, before I move on to that 11th verse, this is all, every everything that James says here, the book of James being kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament, Every one of these verses is related. He's talking to people that he has a bone to pick with them. He has a bone to pick with the church while the church is just getting started. What does he say in the 11th verse here? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So, who are you to judge your neighbor is in context, uh, obviously, to the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And James is basically urging us here, don't run afoul of that. And to, to back that up a little bit here, the uh, Lutheran Study Bible says uh, to slander, to speak evil of, evil of your neighbor is to slander them. It, a slanderer rejects the royal law in James 2.8 and tries to judge God's law, because if I'm able to uh, attack my brother in the faith and slander them while I'm bearing false witness and I'm attacking God's holy eighth commandment. But what, what does that all boil down to? And why are the churches that James is attacking here, that he is lecturing, that he is exhorting to do something else, anything else, you need to be miserable now because of you doing this, it comes down to verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So related to slandering Christian brothers is friendship with the world. And what do we see? Everywhere from all the biggest churches out there, especially in the megachurch model, we'll get to some of the history behind that, is a desire to be friends with the world, to be liked by the world, to be beloved by the world, to get invited to the cocktail party, so to speak. And James says that that, that is enmity or hatred and struggle against God when you start doing that. Why? Because look at what your sinful desires are doing to you. Look at how you slander the brothers in the process of you wanting to be beloved by the world. Your friendship with the world. What is that doing to you? So in the evangelical church, there was a huge, huge, huge movement. And it's still around. Obviously, there are still mega churches. But there was a huge movement called the seeker-sensitive movement. Uh, some of us ex-evangelicals now with, with a good Lutheran church or something. Maybe, maybe that's ringing some bells here. The seeker-sensitive movement said two things. One, the church needs to operate like a business. The church needs to advertise like a business. Because if we want people in pews, we need to start changing our image here to make ourselves marketable to the masses. But two, coming from point one, that means that the people outside of the church are more important than the people inside of the church. Oh, they'll say up and down, 
oh, well, we have small groups for discipleship. We have, uh, we have our sermons. We have uh, weekly Bible studies plus like 14 different venues for people to go to church. All of this stuff. And they'll claim up and down that that is them doing discipleship and doing church for the people that are already in church. While conveniently forgetting that they warped literally everything about what happens inside the church in order to suit those outside. So how does this look? Well, on the, on the externals there, it's your coffee shop. Setting up restaurants inside of the church. So that people can chow down on a, uh, on a pesto chicken panini and drink their latte while staring lazily, half-heartedly at a screen where some guy is talking about the Bible for an hour. Or laser light shows. Or, as I saw recently, uh, guys in stormtrooper costumes kind of jumping around and dancing and everything as part of the sermon. Oh, these churches are huge. Stephen Furtick, the, the people out there that were part of the Mars Hill Network before it uh, self-destructed. All sorts of stuff. A huge, massive churches. Everybody knows who Joel Osteen is. Everybody knows who Rick Warren is. And all these guys doing the whole seeker-sensitive bit, prioritized the unbeliever over the believer to such an extent to where they were willing to remodel entire churches, to remodel their music to sound more like pop music. That's the function of Hillsong. They were willing to put in coffee shops and giant screens and more comfortable seatings to throw away the old hymnals and everything in order to make non-Christians more comfortable. Now, you could say theoretically, that as long as this was still orthodox, small o orthodox Christianity, maybe that'd be okay. You're trying to be, to have an image, I guess, an image that tells people they can be comfortable there. But you, but then you've really hit them with the real gospel, right? No. Because the seeker-sensitive movement decided also that the messages needed to be seeker-sensitive in addition to the actual buildings. So in the seeker-sensitive movement, suddenly you have guys like Joel Osteen saying, I don't talk about hell. Here he is, he waves a Bible up and down in front of thousands and thousands of people and tells them how to live their best life now, but he doesn't talk about hell because it's not his thing to tell people there are real consequences for disbelief. He doesn't want to make the seekers uncomfortable, you see. Are you tracking with me? By deciding to prioritize this quote-unquote seeker, the people you invite to church, the prospective converts, everything, to prioritize them over the people that are already members. They loved the world. And they bent over backwards to refuse. They ended up refusing to teach the whole counsel of God. There was one megachurch that, again, for their sakes, I will not mention the name of it, but I listened to a 62-sermon-long series on the book of Luke. And they did not give the gospel even once. Even on Easter. And even on the Luke 24, talking about the resurrection, the final chapter of Luke, how do these people spend it? Oh, doing apologetics to show that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But not talking about what Jesus rising from the dead means for you. They didn't talk about Good Friday in terms of here is what Jesus did for you, that he died for your sins. He took that punishment on himself. They barely, barely just mentioned that in passing over half a second. Why? Because you're going to make non-believers really uncomfortable when you bring that up. So the seeker-sensitive movement started, I mean, they're not the first people to do it, but they made it popular to seek after the world's approval by making non-believers as comfortable as possible. To let them know they don't have to you don't really have to change. Come as you are, but for God's sake, don't, don't stay that way. Got my fingers crossed. Because I'm going to talk so much modernism into your ears while I'm preaching from this pulpit. Sometimes they don't have a pulpit. They're just there in boy shorts out there talking for an hour and a half. 
And what is the fruits of that? Fast forward some 20 odd years to where we are today, where while a lot of the sermons we heard in 2020 coming from these seeker-sensitive megachurches were condemning homophobia, condemning racism, they were condemning people that disagree with migration, like mass migration into the United States. They were doing everything in their power to just slam it and talk about how bad Trump was. And these are supposedly evangelical churches. The same evangelical churches that the world spits on regularly when they attack evangelicals. So, loving the world is the first reason why so many churches beat their children. They want the world's approval, in part because of the seeker-sensitive movement, but also in part because of fear. Because no matter how seeker-sensitive they are, the world still hates them. Jesus says to the apostles... In the book of John, don't be surprised, the world is going to hate you. Why? Because it hated me first. But the world, no matter how much these churches want the approval of the world, and no matter how much they try to do friendship with the world, the world still hates them. And in addition to this, the world threatens them. The world slanders them. The world attacks them. And what do I mean by the world? I'll get to that in a second. Because the other half of this first reason here, loving the world more than they love God, friendship with the world, enmity against God. In the midst of this, they also learn a fear of the world. Oh, they will silence any pastor that starts speaking the truth on homosexuality. Because they know damn well that the world is going to do well... Maybe something similar to that fundamentalist Baptist church that got bombed a couple months ago. Bombed. In the United States. Nobody's talking about, hey, wait, 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 this is leftist, an actual leftist terror attack. Well, of course not. The world's not going to talk about what it likes to do. And all these megachurches, they know about it. And they won't condemn it. All these worldly churches, even the good ones, the good churches, so many great doctrinal churches, they're afraid to talk about it. Why? Because they know that if they condemn homosexuality, well, they too are going to be targeted. So they shut everybody up. Hey, hey, we don't want to make this guy that we want to be besties with. Uh, we don't want to make them angry because then they'll beat us up. So they're silent because they're afraid. Too silent to condemn the world, but all too eager to condemn their own people to some ter atrocious fates. So what do I mean by the world? Well, the Christian has three principal enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. We all know about the devil. And anybody with a conscience and anybody who has guilt over their sins, they know what the flesh is. But the world is interesting. What is the world? The world is the world system, the world of non-believers, a co almost collective entity of how non-believers act. St. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses before Christ comes and regenerates us, before the Holy Spirit brings us back to life. But we never ask the question of, well, how do people that are dead in their trespasses and sins act collectively? I would wager that the world, as the world system, organized uh, paganism, organized unbelief in humanity outside of the church, it wants to be God. That was the very first thing the devil tempted Eve with, and the very first thing Adam was tempted with was, ye shall be as gods. The very first thing they were tempted with was, eat this fruit because now you'll be God. So we have the transhumanist movement trying to use science to abolish death. We have the uh, LGBTQIA barbecue blah 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 trying to abolish nature and natural relationships. In 2006, the San Francisco gay group, part of their charter was abolishing the nuclear family. We have the, the UN, one of their buildings is literally based off a painting of the Tower of Babel. 
unfinished. Why? Because even in the Tower of Babel, the, the whole goal in Genesis, they say, so that nobody can stop us and nobody can divide us. We can do anything we want. Omnipotence, they want to be God. And say what you will about whatever political preferences you have, saying maybe you want a strong state that is organized around the interests of the people, sure. But the big government types really, really, really do want a state, a government that is omnipotent. That solves all problems. You have the devil who wants to be God. He tried to dethrone God. You have the world that tries to be God, but can never get there. And you have your own flesh, which tells you you should try to be God. Follow after your own desires and ways. But the devil, we, we rightly fear any encounter with the devil. We're supposed to stand and resist the devil. We're told to be courageous here, and we understand that because the devil roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, as St. Peter says. We get that. And the guilt in our hearts from the uh, proclamations of the law, yeah, we understand our flesh is bad news too. So we don't want to say the devil is God. We don't want to say that we're God as Christians here who understand their flesh is evil. <laughs> and the place from which our sin comes, the old Adam, we get that. But when it comes to the world, the world is very, very sneaky. So as these churches start to love the world, start to long for the world to come in, to get their butts in pews, sorry, office chairs, we're not doing pews anymore, right? Because non-believers, they don't like that pew thing, they don't like having to scoot out. As all this happens, the world plays a trick. It's organized. It, it might sound kind of goofy to claim that the world is an enemy when it's the, the gaggle, the, the grouping of all the non-believers here. But they're pretty organized, whether they realize it or not. And they pull a trick, probably with a lot of help from the devil. They basically seem to have convinced the church that they're not enemies. That yes, I can beat you upside the head. I can have celebrity after celebrity after celebrity teaching your kids in all their uh, social media that the church is evil and we're never going to shut up about it. And uh, by the way, yeah, we're going to teach your kids that um, the Crusades were because meany evil Christians did something or another. We're going to do everything in our power to shut you down during the coronavirus lockdowns, but we're going to keep the abortion clinics open and they're going to keep doing all this stuff that is clearly hostile actions against the church. The U.S. military burned Bibles, for crying out loud. But somehow, they convinced the church that they're friends and that the church should forget the natural hierarchy of love. And that leads us to our second explanation here. Why does the church beat her children? What is with this absolute insanity we're seeing here where the normal parishioner is loved far less than the non-believer the theoretical christian out in timbuktu or even the homeless guy that would rather vomit all over the church's parking lot than ever set foot inside of the church why does the why does so many congregations love those people more than they love their own members who are doing their best for the church and doing their best for god the second reason is that they have forgotten the hierarchy of love. Now, I've, I've talked about this before. What is the hierarchy of love? Well, the two greatest commandments that we see in all of Scripture, our Lord Jesus tells us the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this means that I am going to love God with everything, and I'm going to love him more than I love my neighbor. That makes sense, right? So we, we have the initial understanding of a hierarchy there, that I must love God more than I love my neighbor. But among my neighbors, there is a clear hierarchy there of 
Who am I loving more? Who am I loving more? Let's, let's look at that. Husbands, what does the Apostle Paul command us? Love your wife as Christ loves the church. That kind of agape love means being willing to die for her, being willing to dedicate so much of your life for her comfort, for her edification, for her sanctification, making sure she has food, shelter, water, uh, creature comforts, whatever she needs, and you put yourself after her in all of your priorities. You put your wife's needs above your own, and you put your wife's desires above your needs. You look out for her for what is best for her, even when she doesn't like it. Yes, absolutely. But if it's okay, if it's not sinful, you do your best to give that woman what she wants, what she needs, everything. This is, this is your woman, and you love her like that, sacrificially. Because that's how Jesus loves his church. Has anybody else ever gotten that distinction? Where does the Bible say, love your pastor as Christ loves the church? Where does the Bible say, love your children as Christ loves the church? Spoiler alert, it doesn't. There is a hierarchy of love that the apostle here is exposing in how God wants it to, to work. He's giving this truth to us. Am I making sense here? I am told to love my wife in such a way that anybody could see that I love her more than every other human being on the planet. But I'm also told to love God more than her. Now, if you're looking at that and you're going, how on earth could you have so much love to give? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit is the infinite God. And if he's dwelling within you, then actual infinite exists. I don't care if there's a logical contradiction there. Love is not a finite resource here. But at the end of the day, you are, call you are called to love your wife more than your neighbor Bernie. You are called to love your wife more than your kids, more than your grandma, more than your own parents. And before you are married as a man, you are called to love your parents more than everybody else. Honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you in the land you are going in to possess. That is our fourth commandment. Now, as Lutherans, again, we confess that the uh, there are two tables to the Ten Commandments. And the first four commandments deal with, here is how you love God above everything. And by the way, your parents are a part of that because God assigned them to do his job. To do what God intends for your life. To be a living, breathing providence for you. They are your first neighbors. So you honor them in a way that nobody else gets until you, as a wife, have a husband. And then you submit to your husband before you obey and submit to your parents. You see how this works. There's a hierarchy of love, of agape love, loving the other for their own sake. That is agape love. Let's not overly poetic everything. Let's not make it overly poetic here. At the end of the day, the church beats her children because she's forgotten this. They don't understand it. They don't get it. So they tell husbands, you need to give your all for the church. Re, 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 dedicate yourself to Jesus and we need you to volunteer for this and be a part of that and you better be part of your small group and everything. Re, 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 dedicate your entire life to this church. Hey, how come you're not spending any time with your wife? Oh, how dare you? <laughs> We're going to tell your wife it's okay for her to divorce you because you're clearly an abuser. The church has definitely done that. They've been guilty of that in the past, haven't they? Just read Dalrock. Dalrock.wordpress.com. Amazing blog just to, to cover the ways this has happened in evangelical world. And in the Roman Catholic world, everywhere. 
and to love your Christian neighbors and your Christian brethren all the way across the world more than you love your neighbors that are close to you. The church also does that. So not only has she fallen in love with the world and decided to be friends with the world and to put the world's priorities above that of the flock, but they've also decided that they can just jumble around who gets love, who gets care from the church. So somebody out there who none of us will ever meet that is living in the middle of Uganda, who absolutely, they have real needs, but they get more money, more funding, more actual things done for them than you as a parishioner, you as a church member will ever get from that congregation. Why? Because they don't have a hierarchy of love figured out. Again, it's fine to support foreign missions. Got nothing against it. Until it comes at the expense of a church doing something, anything for her own people. Because if you love people across the world, halfway across the world, that you will never ever meet in your life, if you love them more than you love the people in your church, you do not love the people in your church. You are just using them. They are little more than pawns to you. And in America, in a church that not only is trying to make the non-believer feel good. Oh, look, great. They talked about Marvel movies in a sermon. I love this church now. Not only do they want to do that. Not only do they want to be secret sensitive. And not only do they want to avoid the, the eye of Sauron as the world gets ready to do violence to you if you speak out against any of its sinful ways. But they also tell the Christian in each one of these churches, whether explicitly or implicitly, that they are not worth, they're not really worth anything other than the, the monthly tithe and paycheck. This is why atheists out there say, you just want to convert me. You don't actually care about me. When you're trying to bring your, your non-believing friend to the faith and you're witnessing to them about Jesus and you're bringing the gospel to them, they call bullshit because they see what your church is about. They see what your organization is about. They know that they're going to be forgotten the moment they actually sign up for a membership and actually start attending weekly. And heaven forbid they start tithing because for many, 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 many congregations out there, what are they saying? Well, I know how these people treat me. They're only going to care about me until I'm actually one of them and then they're just going to use me. And that's all this is about. Now, is that 100% true? Now, heaven forbid I, in the midst of this, your very Lutheran friend, heaven forbid I end up committing the same slander that I'm talking about these people committing. Of course, there's groups, right? Like promise keepers. We, we really need to talk about, not oath keepers, promise keepers. Blaming men for the divorces that their wives inflicted on them. You know, they're there to support them, I guess. Let's let's talk about Celebrate Recovery, helping drug addicts. Oh, yeah, man. It's really good of them. I don't know what else. Maybe sometimes they, they give cup of noodles to homeless members of the church. Right? So, yeah, there's maybe some individual congregations too where they they do actually go out there and help i was part of a lutheran church for a few years where we had a program where a member of the church if they needed something they could get gas vouchers now we gave them out to anybody that asked one but the member of the church could get a gas voucher get a, a few gallons of gas if they needed somewhere to go and they just couldn't get there on their own paycheck But we've forgotten that hierarchy of love that makes our people not only less of a priority, but basically unloved by the church that won't shut up about how loving they are. Jesus loves you until you're a Christian. 
That's the main message that we see here. Maybe they mean well. Maybe they mean well. We, we, get, we can be fair here. As hard as it is to be fair in this situation, maybe they're looking at it as, well, this was an oopsie. We just wanted to be missional, whatever the hell that means. We wanted to be evangelistic. We wanted people to share their faith. We adopted the seeker-sensitive movement because, Lord Almighty, we just were... As America secularizes, we had to do something to get butts in seats and to get people hearing the gospel. And we could, maybe we could be fair in talking about that, right? They can have that excuse all they want. Except that they're arrogant. <laughs> Except that they're out there claiming about how much they're about love. And how Jesus heals Oh, Jesus heals your hurts, I guess. They'll say stuff like that, and they won't actually represent Jesus to help with that. And their marital counseling, half the time, is based on the Duluth model that just blames a man instead of actually solving the problems in the marriage. I would know I did marital counseling for people that had previously done marital counseling within churches, and so many of the men there were just disillusioned with the whole thing. This was their last stop before divorce, before I show up to give them marriage counseling. And they, it blew their mind because I wasn't just sitting there pointing my finger at the man going, yeah, you're probably a porn addict and I hate you. Why Just prostrate yourself before me. <laughs> so maybe they give counseling. Maybe they give a little bit of help to the poor, but there's something corrupt. There's something wrong with it. There's no grace to it. There's grace for everybody except the church. And where does this come from? I said that love is not a finite resource because it is a disposition. It is an attitude. It is a verb where we do things. Agape is a verb from agapeo. It is to seek the other's good for their own sake, but... At the end of the day, we come to our third reason for why the church is beating her children. Why did, they, why did they adapt to the world and become friends with the world and start saying worldly things and being silent when the world does something terrible, but raising their hands in, uh, in condemnation, raising their voices to scream at their own people whenever the world was pissed off about something? Why did they do that? Well... Again, hierarchy of love. They've forgotten that God tells you to have priorities. But why did that happen? At what point did they mix that up? At what point did they become willing to love their neighbors close to them less than the neighbors that are far away? At what point did they decide to love their enemies more than their friends? It's not scriptural, but it's a confusion. This leads us to the third point here. They have confused compassion with agape. And here we're going to be, we're going to put on our theology nerd hat to discuss the details on how exactly that works. If you'll uh, turn with me here to the book of Colossians, we're going to go to the third chapter here. And we're going to find probably the only place I could find where there was a command to be compassionate. Let's look here at Colossians 3, starting in the 12th verse. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, St. Paul writing here to the Colossian church, and by extension to all of us, he says, okay, you need to have compassionate hearts, you need to have kindness, you need to be humble, meek, and patient, uh, you know, bear with one another, you're, you're all sinners, <laughs> you can be patient with fellow sinners, and uh, be forgiving. Because God forgave you. But above all of these, put on this agape love. Looking out for one another. And that's going to bind you together in harmony. 
So he continues in the 15th verse, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, here, St. Paul puts a priority on agape love as a virtue for the Christian. Now, again, the command to love, that's law. As natural, poor, miserable sinners, we cannot love people with perfect agape love. We try our best, and so Paul puts that as a priority. He says, above all, this is what you should be focusing on. This is what you should be working on. The rest Well, this is going to help with that. But let's look at that word compassionate when he says, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Where does that word compassionate, what does that actually mean? Well, in English here, compassion literally means from Latin, I believe, suffer with. To It's sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. I feel sorry for what you're going through. Okay, that's that's fine. But in Colossians 3.12, the Greek word for that, if you can handle a spaghetti word like uh, this one, uh, oikthermos, oikthermos. It is a masculine noun, Strong's number 3628, which means pity, favor, grace, or mercy. Now, Pity is, it's not the same as we think of compassion. Pity is a condescending feeling. I apologize for the mouse clickings, by the way. But in the Old Testament, it's similar here to the word um, racham, which is, it's related to the word uh, for womb. You know, rachem means womb, W-O-M-B. The idea that when you have mercy or pity on another human being, You have the same feeling for them, the same qualities as a human uterus. I know it's kind of silly, but hear me out. A baby in a uterus is completely, totally helpless. But that womb, that mother, by their nature, provides for that tiny little helpless baby here, who's done nothing good for anybody. The baby can cannot help you do your taxes. This this tiny little baby can't do anything for you. It can't do the dishes for you. Can't walk the dog. Can't even say I love you. Can't even make you feel good until they're born and they're cute or something. But that helpless tiny little child in the womb is nourished, kept warm, given uh, food and drink from the uh, from the tube there coming into their their stomach. Everything is provided for a lesser creature. Somebody who has not demonstrated inherent worth. So the Bible in the Old Testament constantly talks about tender mercy using that word racham, saying God treats us that way. Just like an unborn child that cannot demonstrate any real value on their own, God takes pity on us because we are helpless. And so he has compassion on us this way. So St. Paul here, again, a Hebrew speaker, he understands that. So he tells us to have compassionate hearts, to take pity on people that are helpless, to love them. To, but compassion isn't the same as love. He already made that distinction here in Colossians 3, saying, have compassion. Now, in the midst of that, compassion is pity. Compassion, you might as well call it, um, if we're really looking at biblical compassion, it is pity for the lesser. A willingness to care for others who do not deserve it, who cannot provide it. Help for the hopeless. This is why the Christian is called to help the poor. Now, That isn't going to be help the way the poor necessarily want to be helped. 
if you see some bum out there addicted to heroin on the street being willing to do absolutely anything to get his next fix, if you ask him what compassion looks like, if he's being honest, he'll say, just give me more heroin. This is what I really want. Give me my needle. Give me some horse. And give me a safe place to shoot up so that I don't die of some god-awful disease in the midst of that. That's all I want. And maybe a pack of smokes, too. Well, that's not the kind of compassion for this hopeless bum that God wants you to give the guy. And it's definitely not agape love, giving him what he actually needs. Seeking his own good for his own sake does not have to look like what he wants. So compassion, already we see biblical compassion is helping the helpless. Having a heart for the helpless. Being willing to condescend to somebody who is lower than you to their level to make their life a little bit better. To not think of yourself as above them or too above them to help them out. That's fine. That's perfect. That's a virtue, right? In the world's way of looking at compassion, it's purely emotional. It's not an attitude. It's an emotion. It's feeling sorry for somebody or caring about them in their circumstance. Whether or not that's feeling sorry for them at all. An example would be, uh, many a pastor I've heard saying, we need to have compassion on the LGBT community. These are people who have been hurt by prejudice. We need to have compassion on them. And what do they mean by that? They're not meaning biblical compassion. Because biblical compassion in the willingness to help these guys out and the willingness to be charitable to them looks like, well, I'm going to help you stop doing what you're doing in your lifestyle. I am going to help you care for your body as you recover from your ugly, diseased, violent, twisted lifestyle. But in the world's vision of compassion here, it is refusing to condemn them. It is saying, we accept you, we, it's not just tolerance, we celebrate you and we, we love you and this is exactly what you need right now is to be told that just, just, we just accept everything about you. Are you seeing the trick here? This is the world's uh, fun way of redefining things. This is what the world has done to the church. As the church reached out to become a friend to the world in order to maybe win some more converts here, the world then plants this seed of a redefinition of love by first redefining compassion and then telling the church that they need to mix up the concepts of love and compassion. So now the original understanding of agape is thrown out the window because oh, we wouldn't like that. If I see a sinner who has a high hand, if I really care about that man's soul, I will give him the law that says God condemns you for what you are doing. You are going to hell if you die in this sin. You need to repent. You need to turn to our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way you can be saved because you are not good enough to do that on your own. And yes, there is a hell. That's really loving them. That's telling them the truth and giving them the only way they can have eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's agape love. And yes, compassion fits in that. I'm willing to feed you while I talk to you about this. I'm willing to invite you into my home so I can talk to you about this. I'm willing to tell you the truth, but I'm also willing to be hospitable here and to help you in your life circumstances. But the world, in their understanding of compassion as acceptance, celebration, and eventually forcing everybody to fit a disgusting and worldly mold, they've slowly gotten pastor after pastor, Christian after Christian, to confuse agape love with compassion, and then for that compassion to be a redefined version of it. And so, as a church adopts this, as they are filled with a worldly value, sneakily brought into them, redefined, 
that church begins to transform and look more and more and more like the world. They begin to mutate into a parody of a church. And this is everywhere. This is why I said in good, good churches, even confessional Lutheran churches that have solid members, sometimes you will still see them beating their own children, beating other Christians in that congregation because they are not immune to this. I've even caught myself doing this because this is everywhere in the the Christian sphere, in our books, with our big pastors, the guys that get on the radio, everything. We've forgotten what real love is. We've forgotten about the hierarchy of love. We've forgotten what compassion really is. So this is the perfect time to remember and tattoo it in our brains. From 1 John, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. Starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me read that again. This is an instance in scripture where you are commanded to not love something. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And don't let a single person even try to get away with telling you, oh, love the sin or hate the sin. And the the world isn't a a thing, like like a person here. We're not supposed to, we're not commanded here to not love people. Because even if they have a point, Like, yes, I am called to love my enemies, but I'm not called to love the world. If somebody is worldly, and I love that person, I don't love a thing in him. I don't love a damn thing about this guy. For God's sake, I seek his good for his own sake. For God's sake first, then for his. If you catch my meaning here. I see his value as a creature made in God's image, but I hate absolutely everything about this man. And I desire earnestly that he should stop being the disgusting excuse for a human being that is presented before me. That is a 100% biblical Christian attitude. That is a great way of looking at it. But until the church understands that you are commanded to not love the world, to not do good things for the world for its own sake, to not agape the love, the world, to not do that, until they get that, they are going to be committing terrible spiritual abuse in every single congregation that they engage in this in over and over and over again. And they are going to wonder why people are leaving. Remember, the megachurches are not an expanding movement. They are a revolving door. They got really, really big as people were going ooh and ah for all the accoutrements given to them and all the little creature comforts in each one of these buildings here. But it's a revolving door because as many people are coming in, that same amount are leaving. And slowly but surely as the world fades away and dies out of its own death cult-like way of operating so too will these worldly churches. And more and more people leave the faith going, there was nothing there for me. There was everything there for the stranger, nothing there for me. So remember, please, if anything else, don't love the world. Don't trust the world. Don't try to please the world. Don't mold yourself to the world's standards. But don't forget 
real biblical compassion and love in the midst of this. We have to be alien to the world because nobody else does what a real Christian does in this way. Amen and amen.